Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey there, everybody. It's, I mean, if you think about it, it's a winning Rico Bronia podcast, right? The Mets won two out of three against the Chicago White Sox. We should all be really happy and excited, except we're not. Except nobody's really happy and nobody's really excited because we are at a point in the year in which winning two out of three against the Chicago White Sox at City Field is not good enough. It has nothing to do with how they won game one or how they almost blew game one has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that we looked at these three games after they had beaten the Dodgers on Sunday night and said, for the Mets to continue to get out of this hole they've built for themselves, the only way to do it is to sweep the Chicago White Sox. And that's what's unfortunate, because if this was the middle of April, if this was May, or even if the Mets were you know, 10 games above 500, I think we would view a series victory, even with a lackluster finale where you don't complete the sweep, I think you would still look at the series as a success. Because anytime you win a series, it's a good thing in Major League Baseball. But when you're six games under 500, or at least coming into this series, seven games under 500, and it is late July, essentially, and you're facing a team that's bad, two out of three is not good enough. So let's start right there. Yes, they won a series. Yes, they're now 45 and 51. Not that that's something to write home about. But what happened on Thursday afternoon was enough to kind of delete all the good, if you had good, from Tuesday and Wednesday. And that's where we are in the season. And and I got a spoiler for you. The Mets are about to go to Boston. It's going to kind of be the same thing where they got to sweep them. And that may seem unrealistic and that may seem unfair. The Red Sox are 51 and 46. They're a better team than the Chicago White Sox are, and you're going to Fenway Park, but still, that's where we are in this season. Now, as far as this series is concerned, we'll break down all three games. Also coming up later on, the Tommy Pham update, the Starling Marte update, and we analyze some interesting comments that came from Francisco Lindor when he joined Mookie Betts on his podcast just a couple of days ago. But let's get to the opener of this series. The New York Mets scored five runs in the first inning, and we all couldn't believe it. And that's basically how this series started. It started with a shocking, a stunning five-run first inning. 
Pete Alonso gave you a little sacrifice fly. Okay. Tommy Pham gave you an RBI double. Mets are up one nothing about 30 seconds into the game. Francisco Alvarez hit an absolute moonshot to left field. Brett Beatty completed the back-to-backer. By the way, real quick, and if you saw this, Pete, tell me you saw it. Do you know the last time, and, and believe it or not, the only time, rookies hit back-to-back home runs for the New York Mets? Do you know the answer, first of all? Uh, if you don't, that's fine. I, I think I've heard it before, but I don't know it right now. But I'm going to try to take a guess. Back-to-back rookies? Yes. <sighs> Damn it. I'm thinking I'm thinking Aaron Judge and, and – uh, and uh, Austin Austin no, Kearns. No, no that's the not The Mets. The I Mets. know, I know, but I don't know why they have them in my head. Okay, I'm going to think. Aaron Judge <laughs> Austin Kearns. What the hell David, David Wright and Jose Reyes. Uh, that, that's it. Hey, listen, at least you picked a couple of Mets. Um, so I was at the game Thursday afternoon with my dad and my two-year-old. And my dad turned to me and said, I heard the last and the only two rookies to go back-to-back and I don't think anybody would get it. So I said to my dad, all right, well, tell me the era. So he said, your era, son. Like, it's not the 60s. It's not the 70s. Your era. So the first name I mentioned, I can't believe I got it right. I didn't get the back-to-back right. I named a random Met rookie. And my dad's like, yeah, he was one of them. And the guy I named was Mike Jacobs. And I, and I don't know why I picked Mike Jacobs. Maybe because... Remember Mike Jacobs was called up for a day, hit a home run, and then Pedro Martinez insisted that the Mets will not send him back down, and the Mets listened, and Jacobs ended up performing pretty well, and then they ended up trading him for Carlos Delgado. So I randomly got the Jacobs part right. I could not get the other one until my dad said, well, Joe Beningo remembers him well. And as soon as my dad said that, Victor Diaz, Victor Diaz. Years ago, my wonderful partner, Joe B, said Victor Diaz will be better than David Wright or Jose Reyes. It's famous WFAN audio. So, yeah, Brett Beatty and Francisco Alvarez did something in that first inning on Tuesday night that had only been accomplished by the immortal Mike Jacobs and Victor Diaz. Is that a bad sign, uh, Pete? <laughs> that's that's what I was going to ask you. That doesn't. That's not very promising. I, I don't feel good about that. Can we erase that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's one of those history things you're like, eh, I'm not sure about. But it was stunning. It was stunning they scored five runs. And I don't know about anybody else. When they put the five up in the bottom of the first, as great as it was, and I was watching this game from home, so I was not in the ballpark for it. I still wasn't comfortable. Like, there was no part of me that said, oh, wow, this is going to be a romp. It's probably the Spike Carlos Carrasco slider being much more effective his last few starts, and he's been a lot better. It probably had a lot to do with that. And he immediately gives up a home run to Yasmani Grandal. The Mets get the run back. Lindor had a pretty clutch two-out RBI double. He gives another run back when Tim Anderson, who had, like, the game of the year for him, he's had a dreadful year this year, ripped that RBI double, but it's still 6-2. to two. And, you know, you should still be okay. DJ Stewart hit one to the moon after all of us complained. Why is DJ Stewart in the starting lineup? We all did it. We all saw him batting ninth and DHing, saying, why the hell is he there? Meanwhile, he hits one off the Shea Bridge. And it felt at that point, all right, eight to two. I think I'm all right. And I think we'll be okay. And we were not because Carlos Carrasco could not get through the fifth inning. 
did anybody, did you have an issue, Pete? So it's eight to two at this point. Carrasco gives up back-to-back hits to start the fifth, gets the next two guys out with a run scoring. So all of a sudden now it's an eight to three game. And then he gives up the RBI double to Jake Berger. At that point, think about where we are. It's eight, four. There's a runner on second, two outs in the fifth inning. The pitch count for Carrasco is at 82. Was there any part of you that said, yeah, cookie sucks, but I'd rather try to squeeze a few more outs out of him before I go to this bullpen? I mean, that's every every game. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I would I beg for the, the starting pitchers to go as long as they possibly can because like we saw multiple times so far this year, you just can't trust. Yeah, you know, normally when I see a guy is done, and I think Carrasco was near the end, he was not good in this game, and that RBI double by Berger was hit well. He had now given up three hits in the fifth inning. Forget the pitch count. I don't think he was pitching all that well. Normally, I'd say get him out because he's done. But you know if you're going to the bullpen in the fifth inning, and I don't care how well rested this bullpen is, it's not a good one. You really only have two and a half guys that you trust out of this bullpen. And it's going to take a lot before you get to David Robertson, before you get to Brooks Raley, before you get to Adam Adovino, who are pretty much the guys that you sort of trust. Robertson, definitely. I go back and forth about Adovino. Brooks Raley has actually had a pretty good year. We have to give him some credit. And even though Grant Hartwig came in and did a pretty good job, they still needed to find a way to get 13 outs. Like, that's the game I'm playing. The game I'm playing is, okay, I got to get 13 outs. Can I possibly make it 12 if I can somehow nurse Carrasco through the fifth inning? Buck pulls him. It looks good for a while because, like I mentioned, Grant Hartwig comes in and retires four in a row, and then he gets in trouble in the seventh inning. And then we got to see Trevor Gott really initiate himself as a member of the New York Met bullpen. Because when you are acquired, we can look at your ERA, we can look at your resume, but we're going to give you a blank slate because everything you did elsewhere is irrelevant, good and bad, by the way. This works both ways. So Trevor Gott comes in. I even said it on the Rico last week. Hey, you know, you take out his last two performances in Seattle. He's actually been pretty good. He's under team control next year. This is great. Like, uh, what, what a wonderful Steve Cohen acquisition. All it took was buying off Chris Flexen. Well, Trevor Gott, in the seventh inning on Tuesday night against the White Sox, became a true member of the New York Met bullpen. He has joined all the greats. I'm about to name a bunch of random relievers who have sucked over the last 30 years. Are you ready? He's joined Mike Maddox. He's jo- not Greg Maddox. He's joined Doug Henry. He's joined Jerry DePoto. He has joined Billy Taylor. He has joined... I don't want to say Armando Benitez because he had some pretty good years. He's joined Ricardo Rincon. He's joined Toby Borland. He's joined Rich Rodriguez. He's joined Meli Quidas Rojas. He's joined them all. Because now Trevor Gott is one of us. One of those crappy relievers who when we see pitch, We all just want to shut the TV off. And and in fairness, the first play when Trevor Gott came in was a mistake by Brett Beatty because he got Andrew Vaughn to hit a ground ball to third base, and Brett Beatty essentially didn't know what to do. That was a problem. That was was not ideal. That was a little bit of a problem. 
But then he gives up the double to Berger. Then he gives up a base hit to Yasmani Grandal. Then he gives up a base hit to Zach Remiard. And Buck Showalter, probably one batter too late, if we're being fair about this, finally rescues us from the Trevor God experiment. And here's the reason it was one batter too late. I don't know if everybody's aware of this. There's a three batter minimum. So three, he's got to see. Because <laughs> if this was the old world, he faced four batters. I would have said it was three and a half batters too late. But because there's a rule now, that fourth batter, which was Remyard, was the extra batter he shouldn't have faced. Get his ass out of the game. Because somehow the Mets took a game in the seventh inning that was essentially over. It was 11-4. to The game needs to be over. I don't care if your bullpen is Mike Maddox, Jerry DePoto, and Mel Rojas on crack. The game needs to be over. And what Hartwig and Gott somehow pulled off is they somehow made an 11-4 game, an 11-9 game, in 30 seconds. Pete, the game became close in three and a half minutes. It wasn't like a slow burn. It was just like, oh, yeah, you like 11-4? Smoke this. It became 11-9 instantly. We're going to call this the uh, Trevor Got Smoked segment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he sure did. And look, Brooks really came in and did his job after he issued that leadoff. Not a leadoff, but the first battery faced was that backup catcher, Carlos Perez, who he walked. He was able to get out of it. So good job by Raley. Good job by Adam Adovino, who got through trouble in the eighth inning. And even though David Robertson made it very, very, very exciting when he's walking the leadoff hitter on four pitches and he's walking Elvis Andrus after he nearly struck him out, he's able to hold on to an 11-9 lead. He gave up the RBI single to Benintendi. And then Tim Anderson's up after Benintendi steals second. And he's a base hit away from giving the White Sox the lead. And I'm sitting there and I'm live. I'm live in my Barco lounger. And I was convinced, Pete, the Mets were losing this game. There, there was no doubt in my mind that Timmy Anderson, who already had three hits in this game, was going to put the icing on the cake and the Mets were going to somehow blow an 11 to 4 lead. I was convinced of it. No, I never would. I, listen, it's funny because I'm just going to go back to a tweet that I put out that same day. I was walking the track because I'm, I'm fat. I'm trying to lose weight. So uh, <laughs> as I was walking, I put out a tweet. I said, I still don't feel great about a 5 nothing lead. Need at least double digits tonight. That was at 736. So as soon as we hit double digits, I, I knew that we were going to win. I wasn't happy. But I, as soon as we hit the double digit mark, I was convinced we were fine. Even with second, there are two outs and Tim Anderson's a single away. <laughs> yeah, because you know what? Not for nothing. I, listen. The White Sox are bad for a reason, too, right? I yeah, mean, we're are. bad. We're yeah. bad, but but they're worse than us. So we have to feel good that they're going to gr- screw something up at some, some point in time. Or tease you to the point of, hey, we're about to come back from 11-4 down and win this game to then not. And look, when Anderson flew out to Brandon Nemo, there was a sense of relief, obviously. But after an ugly win, kind of like Sunday night against the Dodgers, after an ugly win, there's that moment of, hey, you know, this wasn't pretty. This wasn't wonderful. But I quickly move on to, hey, they won the game. And when you sit there for three hours or two and a half hours, or in the case of this game, three hours and 28 minutes, that's what we're looking to see. So even though it was 11-10, and even though the Met bullpen was atrocious, 
And even though there were questions that you could certainly lobby at Buck Showalter, lob at Buck Showalter for how he managed that bullpen, the truth is they won the game. And I went to sleep nicely. I felt good because at the end of the day, it was a two-game winning streak. I'm going to intersperse emails throughout the pod because we got a lot of them Tuesday night during this game. And I find them interesting to read now knowing the result of the game. So let's start it off with Matt Mark RLA. He write he wrote this actually before the game even started. 5.07 p.m. He was complaining about the lineup card, which changed. So he was complaining about the original lineup, which had Francisco Alvarez batting eighth. Remember, Starling Marte was initially in the lineup. He was scratched. At the time, we were told it was illnesses. We later found out he's got a migraine issue. He's going on the injured list. But at the time, the initial lineup for Tuesday night had Francisco Alvarez batting eighth, and Matt had an issue with this. Buck batting Alvarez eighth is the epitome of everything wrong with the New York Mets. It's his lineup card. I don't care what input others give. This falls on him. Batting Alvarez eighth just to keep the righty-lefty intact is asinine. Just like this one decision. Like Beatty is in the lineup today, and here he is batting ahead of Alvarez at seventh. It makes no sense. To add icing on the cake, DJ Stewart is at DH. He has nothing to do with anything, even if they win. So why is Alvarez batting eighth? It makes no sense to me. Well, here's the beautiful part. Francisco Alvarez got bumped up to six and hit two home runs. (laughs) You know why I don't get nuts about the lineup stuff? I get nuts with who's playing and who's not playing. I'm with everybody about that. I want to see the better players playing. But in terms of a guy batting eighth or a guy batting sixth, and and look, I have an opinion on it. I'm just saying it's not the end of the world to me, is that sometimes situations are going to find you. So, yeah, Alvarez happened to be batting sixth in this game, and he happened to come up with two on and two out in the first inning, and he happened to hit a three-run home run. And the situation found him in the sixth inning to come up with a runner on first and two outs, and he happened to hit a two-run home run. If he was sitting eighth in this game, now, coincidentally, if he was hitting eighth in this game, those situations wouldn't have found him, but sometimes they do. And so my priority is I want the guys who should be playing, playing. If they're not hitting in the quote-unquote right order, I have an opinion on it, but it's not as important as just get the right guys in. Now, I agree with DJ Stewart. I see DJ Stewart batting ninth, and my reaction is, why is he on the roster, which we talked about last time? Now, to DJ's credit, he goes out and hits a home run. But here's my problem with this. So DJ Stewart hits a home run that still hasn't landed in game one of this series. We never saw him in game two. We never saw him in game three. Like, DJ Stewart disappeared off the face of the earth after hitting a home run. And I find that strange that here's a guy who I admit, I don't want him in the lineup in game one. He does something productive, and then he goes on a milk cart. I don't get that. Well, well especially because you have Stolly Marte, who is unavailable. He he literally is, is throwing up somewhere in the clubhouse, and he can't play, yet your guy who's productive is not available. And it, it, it's funny. I agree with you on the Francisco Alvarez stuff because it doesn't make a difference where you put him in the lineup. The big spots seem to just find him. And that's the most important thing is when he's up in a big spot, he produces. 
Aiden Ustase, and I, I apologize. I screw up everybody's last name because I'm terrible at pronunciating anything, pronouncing anything. But Aiden wrote to us an hour into the Met game on Tuesday night. He wrote simply, we're going to lose. Evan and Hoff, I wanted to put this on record right now. The Mets are up 6-2 to two in the top of the third inning after going up 5 nothing in the first inning. Carrasco looks shaky and will not make it through four innings. They will lose. This is pathetic. Now, luckily, Aiden was wrong about everything. Now, he was right that Carrasco was shaky, but he did make it through four. <laughs> he got to four and two-thirds innings, and somehow the Mets only won the game. Hector writes, the baby Mets go back-to-back. If this is all they score for the rest of the game, it would be a typically disappointing par for the course. Either way, bring up Mauricio. Well, clearly the Mets would score more than those runs in the first inning. They would score six more runs and put up 11. Michael Joseph wrote, it's 11-8 right now. I, I love these in-game emails. Like, they, 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 they entertain me. Let's like, could we just say, could we just say something? Yeah. You guys are now called the Ricos. And do me a favor, please, all of the Ricos out there, keep on just pummeling Evan with emails so we can do this on air. It's it's, it's beautiful. It is. I do appreciate it. A lot of people have said it's therapeutic for them to write down their thoughts and just email it to the Rico as a Rico, like you said. And then we kind of go through the game. This is fun going through game one now, analyzing how we all felt. Uh, Michael writes, it's 11-8 right now. So, by the way, it was 11-8. Uh, it was, I guess, right before they made it 11-9. Hold on. I'm trying, I'm trying to get my track on this right now. So they were up eight to two and then it got to eight to four and then it got to 11 to four. All right. So it was 11 to eight right before Grandal. Actually, it went right from 11-7 to 11-9, if I'm not mistaken. So he may have been a little bit off with the score. Either way, close enough. It's 11-8 right now. Buck finally got got out of here. <laughs> well, when he got got out of here, it was 11-9. So it was an 11-9 game at this point. This is the game that had the power to revitalize the fan base. The offense was clicking. Alvarez is him, etc. Now we're watching our Achilles heel, one of two really, rear its ugly head yet again. Our aging starters are inconsistent and our bullpen is overworked. Mark my words, the Mets will lose this game, Evan. Do your emotional hedge bet and put it all on Chicago. So what's funny is I can't explain why I never emotionally hedged this game. And I should have because at 11-4, I could have gotten amazing odds on the Chicago White Sox. And I never did it. And I was watching the game live. So I didn't even have an excuse. It's funny. I knew going in. For anyone that actually cares about this, my dad went to all three of these games. And I said to my dad, look, I'm definitely going Thursday afternoon. I'll go either Tuesday or Wednesday. I can't make all three games. It's too much. So it was all going to be last second. I said, last second, I'll let you know I'm there on Tuesday. If I don't go Tuesday, I'll go Wednesday. So I went to work on Tuesday, did the show with Joe. And like halfway through the show, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go with tomorrow. I'm going to take tomorrow. And as this game was going on, I kept saying to my wife, boy, did I make the right decision. (laughs) Despite the five runs in the first inning, despite the back-to-back, just, first of all, I got to be honest about this. Three and a half hours ain't easy either. 
It was a three and a half hour game. The Wednesday game was two hours and four minutes. So from a time perspective, I made a good decision. And then just the emotions of this game. And I heard it was very humid outside too, by the way. Well, I was walking, so I I know how humid it was. But I just want to say, you're wrong. When they brought when they took Got out, it was eleven eight. What happened was Brooks Raley's first batter, Carlos Perez, he walked, and then on I don't know if it's the next pitch, the pitch after, pass ball, which scored Yasmani Grandal. You're right. That's a good call by you. You're right. The two run single made it eleven eight. And then the Alvarez pass ball allowed it to make it 11-9. Good job by you. There you go. And I got the scorecard in front of me, and I still screwed it up. My apologies. Dude, there was so much going on in that game. So many emotions. It's okay to miss that one. I, it's, I You're allowed. <laughs> it was something else, man. It really was. There, there's a famous call of Bob Murphy from years and years ago where the Mets almost blew a game, I think, against the Phillies. And Bob Murphy, who you know would show emotion, but maybe not over-the-top emotion, on the final out set, and the damn game was over. And damn coming out of Bob Murphy was a big deal. So it always stays in my head that whenever there's a crazy game, a crazy long wild game that ends and the Mets win, I always give the old Bob Murphy, and the damn game is over. And when Anderson flew out to Brandon Nemo, it was a uh, big time. And the damn game is over. I think the only negative from this game is despite the Mets scoring 11 runs is another tough night for Pete, Pete Alonzo. And I think that is a, certainly a big topic of discussion and we'll get to it in more depth as this pod continues. Pete is struggling. I mean, there's no denying it. And we'll get to the defensive mistake he made on Thursday afternoon as well, but he is just not hitting. So even on a night where they score 11 runs, Pete Alonso was not exactly a bright spot. Jeff McNeil was. He had two hits. He drove in two runs. Francisco Lindor sort of was. Had an RBI double. Tommy Pham was. He got on base four times. To a degree, Brandon Nimmo was. He walked in the first and second inning. And then obviously, DJ Stewart hits a bomb. Brett Beatty hits a bomb. And Francisco Alvarez continues his power stretch with a couple of home runs. And the Mets win the game by a score of 11-10. And that felt good. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – Price and coverage match limited by state law. As far as game two is concerned, they really needed Justin Verlander more than anything to give them innings. When you think about what happened the night before, one of the negatives about blowing a lead like that, even when you win, is not, like I said to you earlier, just win the damn game, but there are ramifications you feel after you have to use your entire bullpen, after you have to use Adovino, and Robertson throws a lot of pitches, and Rayleigh's out there. And one of the ramifications is, are those guys available the next day? And even if they are, that would certainly eliminate them from pitching the following day. So going into Wednesday, that was a part of my thought process. You know, as great as the win was, their bullpen being so crappy forced them to have to use all their high-leverage guys. 
So they needed not just a good performance by Verlander because the Mets have to win basically every game they play, but they needed depth from Justin Verlander. And, you know, from the get-go, really until the seventh inning when he had a laborious inning, he wasn't only getting outs. He was doing it quickly, very, very quickly. And I don't mean quickly because, hey, I'm at the game and I like two-hour, 10-minute games, but quickly in that he was saving all of his bullets. So here's my question for everybody out there, because I give you my answer. It's the third inning. At what point, if at any point, did you turn to a friend or text someone and say, hey, Verlander's pretty perfect so far. What are we thinking? <laughs> did you ever get to that point, Pete? Because he did allow a hit to lead off the fourth. So again, as I'm walking through the track, I definitely was all about it. But the problem is I was listening to Keith Red and uh, – and Pat McCarthy, and they very early on would say, it's perfect two innings, perfect really? three innings. I'm like, you know what? You guys just got to shut up. <laughs> like, please, <laughs> we don't need this right now. Before you know it, it's going to be a six-run fourth. I don't need this. <laughs> By the way, what, what was going through my mind is, so I did Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday with Joe B. And I we had a discussion at one point about the no-hitters in Met history and what it would mean to get a perfect game. And what I questioned with Joe, and it's actually an interesting discussion that we could have more in long form on the Rico at some other time, was if Max Scherzer or Justin Verlander pitched a perfect game for the Mets in a season that's going nowhere with their Met careers really being marked by not coming up big, would that perfect game matter that much to you? Or would would you kind of look at the guy who did it and say, eh? Like Scherzer's probably a better example than Verlander because Max has come up so small in so many big spots already. Like if Max Scherzer pitches a perfect game this weekend in Boston, I'll give you a great example. Saturday afternoon, he goes to Fenway, perfect game. The Mets still finished 10 games under 500, and Scherzer is still defined by coming up small in big starts. Are we really going to celebrate that perfect game, or do you need the right guy in the right moment. Here's the right – well, you got to be the right guy. doesn't have to be the right moment because I'm telling you right now, if, if Jacob deGrom during one of his Cy Young years threw a perfect game, I think we would have been amazed even though the team was still cracked. Yeah, yeah, But yeah, because yeah. It's, it's a guy like a Scherzer or a Verlander, yeah, it, it wouldn't – and this, this season was a, a terrible and, and, and bottomed out the way it's been going so far – that, that wouldn't mean anything to me. It would actually still be like, get the hell out of here. Johan was almost the perfect guy because even though the team underachieved around Santana, he proved he was clutch. Game uh, game 161, three days rest, torn meniscus against the Marlins, complete game. Like I know he never got a chance to pitch in the postseason, but Johan showed us, hey, he had balls. And none of us really have a negative taste towards Johan Santana. So he was the right guy. And I think that's why it worked out. Either way, Verlander did not pitch a perfect game Wednesday night, nor did he really threaten one, but he did retire the first nine guys, and he worked around giving up the hit he gave up to Andrew Benintendi, and that was it for the first six innings. The only base runner against Justin Verlander was that single by Benintendi, and credit to the Mets. Brett Beatty had a home run for his second straight game in the third inning. They took advantage of Tuki Toussaint's Control issues in the fourth inning, got a huge RBI single by Alvarez, went the other way, and then had productive outs by Beatty and Gourmet that drove in two more runs. Brandon Nimmo had an RBI double, and that 5 nothing lead felt very, very comfortable. This was a very different feeling than a night earlier 
because Verlander was so locked in. And and so far with with Verlander, he's had some of these some of these performances where you see Cy Young Verlander, where you see the guy who's the Hall of Famer, and then he's had average performances, and he's had his you know mediocre performances. He had his stinker in Atlanta, which unfortunately still sticks with me. But the Mets needed this. They needed that kind of dominance, and they needed the efficiency. He had thrown fifty nine pitches through six innings. And I turned to my dad and said, he, he could go nine. Like, he can absolutely go nine. Now, he struggled in the seventh. He got through it, gave up the home run to Robert, got through, through. Let me see. I wrote this down. He threw 30 pitches that inning. So after throwing 59 through the first six, he went out and threw 30 pitches in the seventh inning and then pitched the eighth. And he was at an even 100 going into the ninth inning, up five to one, and there was a big part of me that wanted Buck to get the ninth out of Verlander for a, a few reasons. Number one, the Mets were still scheduled to play four consecutive games. The following afternoon against the White Sox, three more with Boston before an off day. So to give your bullpen a complete off day would be pretty valuable. That's number one. Number two, Verlander is going to get an extra day before his next start because the Mets off day comes on Monday. And he's not pitching this weekend, obviously, in Boston. His next start or his fifth day would have been Monday. There's an off day, which means his next start will be in the Bronx against the Yankees, which I'm sure he's looking forward to. So I thought there was a perfect storm of allowing Verlander at an even 100, especially because how easy he pitched the eighth inning. Like he had that laborious seventh, but then in the eighth, he barely broke a sweat with a one, two, three inning. So it's not one of those. First or second guesses, I'm going nuts about necessarily, but I, I wanted it. I was in the ballpark saying, come on. It's a it's perfectly set up for Verlander to go nine. Give him the ninth inning. Well, listen, here's the thing is, right? Like, I know he's 40 years old, but if this was seven years ago, there's no doubt he'd go back out there. And listen, you could have a short hook on the guy. You could have him like, I know they were warming up guys in the eighth inning, too, just in case there was an issue. Have him warm up again in the ninth. Like, who cares? Just if Verlander walks the first guy, okay, pull him. If he gets the guy on base, all right, pull him, whatever. But, like, at this point in time, the the desperation we have, especially when the bullpen comes in, you're, you don't know what the hell's going to happen. Let him go. Yeah, because, look, we didn't know what was going to happen Thursday afternoon. Obviously, with the way the game turned out, the Mets fell behind and – you know, it, it, they wouldn't have needed necessarily Adam Adovino because the game got out of hand, but they used Adovino for that ninth inning, which made him unavailable for Thursday afternoon. Now, I don't know that Wednesday night. Wednesday night, I'm thinking, hey, I want everybody available for Thursday afternoon. So that was the negative they could have faced from using Adam in that ninth inning against Chicago. But either way, Verlander was great, and we all have to admit it, and it was great to see. And it was it was fun especially being in the ballpark, watching a dominant pitching performance. I love that. That's in our DNA as Met fans, you know, especially with our heritage of Tom Seaver and Doc Gooden and recently Jacob DeGrom. We want to see those great pitching performances. And Verlander gave it to us on Wednesday night. He was he was utterly dominant. No, and it's amazing. What, the, what really was amazing, because like you said, you go from a three-hour and 20-minute game or whatever it was where you're sweating bullets the entire like second half of the game, and this, you never, even in like, was it the seventh inning when he gave up the home run to Robert, and then he, then Berger, uh, either Berger walked and Sheets got a base hit. 
even that wasn't like very stressful. You felt like confident, even if you did give up a big home run, you still got the lead, whatever the case is. You still could bring in David Robinson if you need to. You didn't sweat that one out at all. And that's the rarity. You yes. never get those. Yeah, it was fun. It was a fun out at the ballpark for exactly what you just said. Like I was never stressing it at all. Like even when Verlander got in a little bit of a trouble spot in the seventh inning, I kind of just felt he was going to get through it. And they had a 5-1 lead, and yeah, there were a couple of guys on base, but I was never overly nervous. So it was a nice, comfortable victory to win their third in a row. And remember, the two games they had won, the Sunday night game against the Dodgers, the Tuesday game against the White Sox, were both very, very shaky. And I even said on the air with Joe, this is the worst two-game losing streak I've ever seen. Like, the most unimpressive two-game losing, uh, two-game winning streak I've ever seen. Like, yeah, they're two wins, and I'm happy about it. I don't throw them back. But you didn't walk away from it feeling amazing. At least for the third in the three-game winning streak, I felt pretty good. Unfortunately, that was it. <laughs> Unfortunately, the three-game winning streak was where it would end. On Thursday afternoon at City Field, an afternoon weekday game I was so excited about because I'm off. I was off Thursday. I was off Friday. And then I'll work for a couple of weeks. Believe me, I will be on the air for a couple of weeks. We're launching the new show, Evan and Tiki, yippity doo dah. We'll, we'll be on the air, all right? <laughs> but I'm taking a lot of vacation. What the hell do you want from me? So I say to my wife, honey, I want to bring my littlest guy to City Field. I want to bring my two-year-old Spence, just me and him and grandpa, because my dad was coming. So I got a little backup, a little backup. When I got to change his diaper, at least I can leave some bags at my seat. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not asking grandpa to do anything. I'll do everything. The changing, the diapers, the food, the the, the, the leche, that's milk. And I'll do all that. But I got a backup with grandpa. And so my wife says, go ahead. Bring it home, baby. So I'm excited about the game because, yeah, I want the Mets to sweep the White Sox, win four in a row. But this is my first son dad with my youngest at City Field. And it went as well as it could have gone outside of the game. I got there 1215. We're walking around. He's happy. I get the ice cream and the uh, the home run apple. And my youngest son's got quite an appetite. He went to town on that chocolate ice cream and it got everywhere. And I, I, I want to thank a, an unnamed usher because this unnamed usher said, can I get you some napkins? And I said, I would appreciate that. And he even placed the napkin on Spence's neck as a bib. And I'm like, look at this guy. This guy's like a grandpa. This is freaking fantastic. So thank you to that guy, especially when I left my cell phone there and I came back and luckily I was able to find it. So pregame, life is good. First three innings. And by the way, I had four or five people come up to me and said, you know, I saw you holding your son and scoring a game. And I knew that had to be you. Because there's no other person that would score a game while holding their son, which is what I did. I pulled it off. I got him on my left knee. I got my scorebook on my right knee. He's like pointing, what this? What this? What that? What this? And I'm like, well, that's a plane, son. That's Mr. Met, son. That's Tim Anderson. And that's um, Pete Alonzo. Six dash three, strikeout two. Three and a half innings of, I can't believe I'm pulling this off. Like, I can't believe I, 
I got my kid on one day and I'm scoring the game on the other. And then in the fourth inning, with the Mets down 2 nothing, and by the way, it felt over in the first inning. I don't know why. I have no idea why, but when Eloy Jimenez hit the RBI single, and by the way, let me say a few things about this game. Tommy Pham looked hurt immediately. If you remember the Luis Roberts single, and that was right after Tim Anderson singled, Tommy Pham took forever to get to that baseball in left field, and Anderson very easily got to third base. And it was suspicious that Pham took as much time as it took for him to get to that baseball and throw it in. So instead of first and second one out, which it should have been, this first and third one out, and then when Eloy Jimenez hits the RBI single, there's no guarantee if he's on second, he comes in to score. It probably is bases loaded one out. Either way, Quintana gives up that first inning run. Three straight singles certainly didn't help him out. Fam's kind of lackluster defense in left field. He gives up the leadoff double in the second inning, and to the White Sox credit, they had productive outs to get that second run home. But down 2 nothing to Michael Kopech. It just, I don't know why. Maybe it's because of all the runs they scored on Tuesday and Wednesday. I just didn't feel good about the offense getting out of that early deficit. But in the fourth inning, my youngest son says he wanted to t- he wants to take a walk. And I was like, ah, I could do that. City Field's an open stadium. I'll take him for a walk. Plus, this is not about the Mets. This is about Spence. This is about him enjoying a day at the ballpark. So we go out. We're walking around. And he, he just says to me, he points and he points up. I was like, well, what do you want? You want the Cariola? Cariola is the uh, stroller in Spanish. You know, we're a bilingual household. He says, yes. I put him in this Cariola Hoff 35 seconds in. He is snoring and he is passed out. And he is done. Like he's a two-year-old. He had a very busy morning, a very busy pregame. He downed an ice cream. He watched four innings on his dad's lap. And now he is drooling all over himself like he's a senior citizen who passed out after a long game of shuffleboard. Well, what time, what time is this? Because if it's like one thirty, quarter to 2, like that's got to be a nap time for him, no? Bingo. It's about 2 o'clock. <laughs> you, you nailed the time. And, and here's what, what I knew. When I left to go to the game, I knew he needed to nap in the car. And if he didn't, which he did not, two things were going to happen. One of two things were going to happen. Either he was going to pass out, which he did, or he was going to be in a mood like a everything sucks, I hate the world mood. Which would you prefer, him passed out or the mood? I won. Oh, a thousand percent. That's a home run right there, even though the Mets didn't hit one. Well, actually, he did. Uh, Omar Narvaez hit one right around the time, right? That's right. That's right. (laughs) So he passes out, and I just stroll him around the ballpark watching the game. And I finally find a spot. There's a lot of great standing room around City Field. I started off in the right field corner, and then I worked my way almost behind home plate. I was field level, like, behind the Met dugout, standing room. So I'm standing, which I don't mind. And I got the stroller in front of me, and he's sleeping. And that was it. That was me for the next five innings. (laughs) So Grandpa's by himself. I'm watching the game. I don't want to bother Spence. The only time I bothered him, I was in a very tough father conundrum. He was obsessed with Mr. Met, which I think all the kids are. In the sixth inning, Mr. Met started standing right next to us. So I'm like, man, do I wake my kid up so that he can meet Mr. Met? 
I didn't know what to do. So I, I wake him up. I'm like, Spence, 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 Mr. Matt. He opens his eyes. He looks over, puts his head back down and passed out immediately. So I feel like, all right, I, I, I did my job. You tried. You Listen, he can't get angry at you. I mean, he can, but he can't. Nah, he knew. Try explaining that. <laughs> I, when he woke up, I did, and he was fine with it. And he slept until the eighth inning. I was like, it was unbelievable. Like, I'm standing there, and I met a lot of fine people, by the way, and everybody was very, very nice. And, and, and I can't tell you how many people come up to me and say, the only reason I recognized you is because you're scoring a Mets game. And I guess it's how I'm scoring the Mets game. That, you know, in one case, I got my son bobbing on my left knee. And in the next case, I'm using the cover of his stroller as a table to score the game while he's passed out. And I guess people see that image and say, well, that has to be that schmuck who does Rico Bronia with Pete Hoffman. I guess that's what people come up with. But look, the game was terrible. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to avoid talking about the game. Like, let's talk about fatherhood and strolling around City Field. Could, listen, I, I, I just have to say, good for you. Take now. This is not Spence's first game, right? No, he's been at games with with Mama, with his older brother, with me. He's been to a handful, but this was the first daddy and son game, if you will. No, I got you. But listen, that's that. It's 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 a good experience for you your your father because you're able to at least put it all together and worse comes to worse if things get real bad you could pawn them off on your dad no for future <laughs> reference <laughs> i i kept telling myself i'm not going to do that like the, the beauty of my dad being there besides you know the company of him is that when you take a kid to a game and i even know this with my oldest son who's six is i have to bring so much crap like, I got to bring food just in case. I got to bring a tablet. I got to bring, you know, waters. I just, so many more things than I would normally bring. So you end up carrying a lot of crap. So I think what was nice is having some extra hands just in case. That was the real so, help. So the difference between you and I is because, I mean, first of all, you're going to games a lot more than me. You're probably bringing your family way more than I am. Even though I, I feel like I'm big this year in particular, I've been taking the, the kids to, to a game at least like once every other week, which has been pretty solid, maybe once a week, whatever. Not bad. But I, I don't bring anything besides them. And is that the crazy thing to do? Because I feel like you say you're bringing food, you're bringing this, you're bringing that. Is it, listen, it's more um, financially acceptable or for financially beneficial to bring sandwiches, to bring other things. It, Are you doing I, I that? I promise you, it's not even about the money. It's about, like, you know, I want to I want to be in my seat. Like, I, I, I get up, and I got up for Spence. Like, I'm going to get up if I have to. But ideally, I want to set things up where we can be in our seat for nine innings. And that's the way I learned it. Like, my dad, when he took me and my sister to Met games, we were not getting up a lot. Like, there were rules. Like, we're going to be here for nine innings, and we ain't getting up. So there's things I can bring to avoid getting up, you know, bringing a half a muffin because my kids like a muffin and bottles of water and things like that. It really isn't, oh, I'm cheap and I don't want to spend money at City Field, though I don't want to give the Mets any more of my money, but I also don't want to wait online. I don't want to get up. I don't want to walk around. Uh, tablets I bring as an insurance policy because they get bored. I, I, I got to do something. And one of the, the funniest thing is... um. 
my oldest son, Jet, when he uses his tablet as a, at a Met game, he uses it to play baseball. So he's he looks up to watch baseball and then plays baseball with the same Met team, usually against the same team we're facing. Wait, wait, wait. What game is he playing? He plays a game called Tap, tap Baseball. Okay. Tap baseball is good. There's also like another like another card baseball game that my 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 youngest son plays, but he plays both. Okay, and those things are great because it gets you know teaches the kids a lot about baseball. That's for sure. So you kind of you're doing both. I will tell you this, and before we get back to the actual game, because we're trying to prevent getting to this this third game, <laughs> we're doing we really are. Best. We're doing. We're doing our, uh, th- I will say this much. Now he's five years old right now. My youngest, Anthony. Yes. He plays baseball with his brother. He now he and his brother's thirteen years old, so he goes and watches his games. But he plays a lot of the show and everything else. I gotta be honest; it's not a bad thing because he is educationally like light years away from a lot of the kids that haven't played these games at all. Like in in a game, in 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 coach pitch, he knows what to do if he's on second base and there's not a runner on first. He he knows that he doesn't have to go to third base. He knows if there's bases loaded, he's he's on the pitching mound to go home. He knows all yeah. this stuff, and it's because of the games he plays. So 100%. it's not a bad thing. No, bad these thing. these sports video games are good things to learn to learning the game. You know, you mentioned situations, which is great. Even just learning about players and teams. It's it's funny. I said this on the air to Joe, and I was tongue in cheek a little bit, but I'm sort of not. We were talking about radical realignment. Because Joe is under the impression, rightfully so, that inevitably the Mets, the Yankees, the Red Sox are all going to be in the same division. And I said to him, look, Jet plays tap baseball. And for whatever reason, the standings in tap baseball is all geographic. Like he's in a pennant race with the Blue Jays, right? And I believe it's Major League Baseball's way of infiltrating our youth into thinking this is acceptable. Like, yeah. Of course the Mets and Yankees and Red Sox are competing for the same division, just like they do in tap baseball. So I think they're trying to infiltrate our kids' minds into this is the preferred outcome anyway, so that when they finally do it, everybody's okay. Um, As far as this game is concerned, look, Quintana was fine. He gives up those two runs early, and he settled down. So five innings, two runs, acceptable performance. Was he pulled too early? I think it's his first start of the year mentality with Buck of, I don't want to push him too far. Third time around the batting order. Uh, I think his pitch count was like in the high 70s, low 80s. So it was low. But first start of the season, I think they were trying to be extra careful. The problem is Drew Smith sucks. That's really the issue. Drew Smith in the first half of last year looked like a capable major league pitcher who could be in your circle of trust. And really, over the last year, he's been atrocious. Now, I'm not exonerating Pete Alonso. I want to make that very clear. Pete Alonso, on the first pitch of the sixth inning, gets a ground ball right to him. He lets a ball go under his glove and showed a lot of emotion on the field for how pissed off and disgusted he was. That doesn't mean that Drew Smith has to give up a base hit to the next hitter. That doesn't mean Drew Smith has to walk the following hitter. That doesn't mean Drew Smith on an 0-2 pitch needs to give up a two-run double to Yasmani Grandal. So, yes, the error was unacceptable, and it was a huge play in this game. I am not ignoring it, but it doesn't take away from the fact 
that Drew Smith is atrocious. Atrocious! And even after he gets the next two outs, he gives up the RBI triple to Elvis Andrus. Did he stick with Drew Smith too long? Yes! Yes, he did! Like, after the error, the next three guys get on base. At what point do you say, hey, maybe Drew doesn't have it today. Let me get him out of the game and go to David Peterson or Dominic Leone or anybody. Like anybody at that point. So, yeah, I thought he stuck with Drew Smith way too long because it turned a two-to-one game completely out of reach because this was a close game. And against the White Sox, as Pete mentioned earlier, a bad team, a team that's 17 games under 500, keep the game close. You've got a chance. Even after the two-run double by Grandal, okay, it's four to one. The game is not over. And yet Drew Smith stays in this game. And look, David Peterson, when he eventually came in, actually looked pretty good. Struck out Andrew Benintendi after he issued a leadoff walk, picked off Tim Anderson. He looked good. Dominic Leone looked good. Trevor Gott even looked good. Everybody looked decent except for Drew Smith. And that was infuriating. So I have a question for you because I, I wanted to bring up what we were talking about the first game, but I this was more timely for me because this game just happened and uh, it's you know still four innings to go. You have two pitchers in Carrasco and now in Quintana, which you know Quintana, it's his first game back, so I understand, yes, pitch count, 77 pitches. You still could have pushed him, but you don't want to because his first game back. Why is David Peterson like? Listen, I don't like him in the bullpen, right? But why is he, especially the first game where you have that big of a lead? Why is David Peterson not getting an opportunity? Because he gives you at least length, right? Like, why didn't he go to Peterson in the sixth inning as compared to Drew Smith? Yeah, I, I think it probably had more to do with who was coming up that he looked at Robert and Jimenez and said, I like the Drew Smith matchup. I don't want to bring David Peterson, a lefty, in to face some of those bigger right-handed bats. So I think it was a matchup reason from Buck, I, which, which, by the way, I get. I understand it. I just think when a guy's ineffective, you need to quickly get them out of the game. You know, like, And it was the same with Trevor Gott from two nights earlier. Like He did not have it. What did you think was going to change? You know, one of these things about mediocre relievers, Dominic Leone's a great example. There are days when Dominic Leone comes in and looks great. Thursday, finale of the series, he was great, the one inning he pitched. And then there are days in which he sucks. When when you have one of those up-and-down relievers, and the Mets have a lot of them, Drew Smith, Trevor Gott, Dominic Leone, when it's evident early on they don't have it, after the three batters, get them out. So... I, I don't want to say I completely disagree with you because if he went to David Peterson to start the sixth inning, I wasn't going to freak out. But I think that's a matchup thing. I think he looked at who was coming up and figured he wanted the right-hander on the mound more so than he wanted Peterson. Yeah, but the right right now, and this this goes to show a lot about Buck this year, a lot of his moves he's making are the wrong ones. And, oh, and yeah. it, hasn't cha- it hasn't changed even this late in the season. Yeah, and, and look. They lost this game because the offense, which was so good on Tuesday and was pretty good on Wednesday, did nothing. It didn't do anything. Omar Narvaez had a home run in the fifth inning. Great. Two-out home run. Yippity-doo-da. And Pete Alonso gave you at least one minor positive with an RBI single in the eighth inning. Outside of that, they didn't hit. They could not figure out Michael Kopech. They didn't do much against the bullpen. They ended up with, what was it, five hits in the game. So 
What's been the story all year long? They're up and down. They're up and down. When they pitch, they don't hit. When they hit, they don't pitch. And the finale of this series kind of hit that. They made a bad defensive miscue that cost them. Their bullpen was atrocious. Their starting pitching was fine but didn't go deep enough, and they got nothing out of their offense. As far as Pete Alonso is concerned, let's spend some time on Pete. Pete Alonso is having a terrible, terrible season. It is no longer a slump. It's no longer a, hey, it's been a while. He is just flat out having a bad season. His comments after the game, which I can see why a Met fan would criticize. If you didn't see it, it was basically Pete saying about the positives he takes out of the finale. You know, the positives of that RBI single, the positives of his, I think he called it swing decisions, which sounds like a very Aaron Boone thing. I like our swing decisions recently. I think those are the quotes of a guy that is just trying to figure it out. He is having a stretch of baseball that is probably the worst he's ever had in his career. I hadn't felt like he had taken out to his defense. He has made a couple of defensive mistakes recently. Are they associated? Like, is he taking his offense out to the field? Maybe. It's possible. But right now we are witnessing a guy that the Mets need to be productive. They need to be one of their best hitters struggle big time. And I don't think there's anything you can do about it. I don't think there's a, a magic elixir. Am I ready to drop him? No. Like, because if you drop him in the lineup, the, the retort would be, okay, who's it in cleanup? Hey, who deserves Francisco Alvarez, by the way, is the only answer. Like that's that's it. If you're listening right now and you're screaming Francisco Alvarez, you're right. And that's the only answer. Okay, so if you want to go, now Tommy Pham may miss a couple of days, so let's leave him out. If you want to go Nimmo, Lindor, Alvarez, fine. But Alonzo's still going to be hitting fourth or fifth. Like, you're not dropping him to eighth. You know, you're not moving Mark Canna to the fifth spot. You're not moving, who are you moving up? So I think right now, Pete, you got to run him out there every day, and you just hope he figures it out. That's it. So. So the one thing, and we haven't really touched on it yet, and I'm not sure if this is the podcast to do it on. You know, obviously the trade deadline's coming up, and you said this last week or last episode where it's like you, everyone, you, there's no one that shouldn't be on the table. But the reality of is it something you would do right now to trade Pete Alonzo? No. Is that is that something you could realistically no. swallow? No, I hate it. And we got a few emails about it, so let's get to it. And then we'll respond. Both of us will. Michael uh, Tansack writes, and this was from Tuesday. Is Pete really the guy we want to pay $200 million to to play first base for the next eight years? Normally, I'd say sure, no brainer. However, he's increasingly becoming a hard guy to root for. The guy provokes the Braves while his team is floundering. He then promptly gets plunked. Our season really nosedived at that point. He then rushes back only to give us non-competitive at-bats. Oh, and then he rushes to join the home run derby instead of resting his obviously bothersome wrist. Really, Pete? A fourth straight derby? What exactly are you trying to prove? That combined with his stupid cursing, humping antics on the field and his past of the field branding efforts like his dumb YouTube channel or designer shoes, which I got to tell you, I'm not that familiar with. He seems to care more about his brand than winning. Oh, yeah. He's been awful since April 22nd. Trade, extend, or let him walk after the year. Uh, Here's another one. Jimmy Kearney writes, 
Do you think Buck Showalter should sit Pete Alonso? This was before Thursday's game on Thursday before the trip to Boston because he's an over away from dropping under 200. Nick Stasiak writes, when does Pete Alonso start facing some criticism? He's been atrocious this season. Lindor's had one bad week and this fan base wants him DFA. Alonso's been horrendous for almost three months now, and there's not a peep from the fan base or the media. Jimmy Kearney, who talked about Alonzo's batting average, wrote, should they trade Pete Alonzo? His meaningless RBI single in the eighth aside, his first three at-bats on Thursday were weak and barely competitive. Pete started with his error that in that sixth inning. Pete's headed to Boston on the verge of dipping below, below 200. I love Pete. I think he should have been extended over the offseason. But my question is, what's Pete's trade value right now? The rule is you don't trade low, but he's Pete Alonzo, right? What could he bring back at this point? Could Steve Cohen convince Pete to part ways amicably with full confidence Cohen will be there when he hits free agency? This looks more than a slump. This looks like a mental wear and tear from years of great personal achievements and awful team disappointments culminating with the end of last season and what continued into this season. I hate the term change of scenery, but maybe he needs to get away from the Mets while they figure their crap out. All right. So my point to this is the idea of trading Alonzo or ripping Alonzo. It's obviously out there. I think to Jimmy's point, the thought of trading Pete Alonzo as he's going through the worst slump of his career is absolute lunacy. I'm sorry. Now, you want to have a discussion about is he worth $200 million? Do you want to pay him? That's fine. We can have that discussion. It's a worthy debate. But for people in the midst of this horrific slump to say, get rid of him, he sucks, that is hor- that's a terrible idea. Does he still have trade value? Yeah, he has trade value. Does he have as much trade value as if he was having a normal Pete Alonso season? No. I hate the idea of trading him right now. I wouldn't. I don't think the Mets are. I, 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 I'm disgusted by the thought because it feels reactionary. That's the way it feels. It feels as if people are pissed at the way he's playing, which we all should be. He's not playing well. And thinking the answer is to trade him. It is not the answer to trade him. Not now. Not when he's almost under 200. We all know he's been having an awful year. That's why this uh, the email from Nick, who said, when is he going to face criticism? He is facing criticism. Now, if your question is, why is he not being booed at City Field? Uh, this is a debate we could have about many a player over many years. Homegrown guys will face the boos. It takes longer for them to face the boos than the guy who is a star elsewhere and got paid $35 million a year and underachieved early on. David Wright wasn't going to get booed as quickly as Carlos Beltran. He wasn't. Jacob deGrom was not going to get as booed as quickly as Max Scherzer. He's not. Uh, And so Pete Alonso, who's a homegrown guy, came up immediately and won rookie of the year and set the all, you know, rookie home run record. We all know he's struggling right now. No one is denying that. No one is defending the way he's playing right now, 
but he's not going to face the same heat as the superstar that was acquired. I, I think it's pretty simple. That doesn't mean he isn't facing criticism. It doesn't mean people aren't realizing that he is having the worst year of his career and certainly the worst two months of his career. That aspect I disagree with. He is facing criticism. And talking about the offseason and trading him and not extending him, that will be a worthy discussion. But to trade him in the midst of the worst slump of his career right now, I hate the thought of that. And it bothers me when Met fans and Yankee fans do that. Like, now's the time to trade the guy who's having the worst year of his career. How about you do it when he's coming off a big year? Then you'll really maximize the guy's value. Well, a couple things. First of all, the reason why people are deflecting the Pete Alonso more now is because you can't complain about Lindor anymore. Like, he's getting his average back up. He's still set to hit, like, 30 home runs and 100-plus RBIs. The fact that Pete Alonso really has been stuck on the home runs where he is right now since he got – since he hurt his wrist, since he got hit by a pitch, he really hasn't done anything. But the couple defenses here, first of all, his defense – you could complain about recently he's had a couple errors, a couple, couple moments. I don't know if it's included in today, but on record he has four errors right now in the season. Maybe right. fifth with the one today. So do you want to sit there and be like, oh, he's defensively you know, awful, he's, he's, uh, he's terrible? First of all, you and I have talked about how, how much he's improved. I know he's made some bad plays in big spots recently. But it's not like it's been like that all season long. So that's the first thing. Second of all, you like you're talking about like Pete Alonso right now. Let's trade him. I mean, you could also look at Jeff McNeil, Brandon Nimmo. He, he's been the maybe the the actual person that's been staying strong the whole entire season. But between McNeil, Marte, you go up and down this lineup. It's not very productive overall. So to sit there and look at the one player who, yes, he's supposed to be a leader. But why you look at the – there's other people that are getting paid way more money that should be more of a, this guy needs to go before Pete Alonso. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I also don't necessarily agree with, well, he rushed himself back. He went to the home run derby. He's a bad guy. He cares more about his brand. I don't buy it. I think Pete Alonso's pressing right now. I think he wants to perform. He wants to hit. He wants to win. The other thing I don't agree with, and it was cited, I, I I forget if it was in an email to, to Rico Bronia or it was a phone call on WFN, I apologize, was comparing this to 07, 08, 09 and the old debates me and Francesa used to have about the core being rotten. What was so weird about the Mets in 07 and 08 is that they were a good team. They had productive seasons from their star players and they found a way late to choke specifically in 07, but they lost a hard-fought pennant race in 2008, and obviously they crumbled in 2009. The Mets right now are not choking necessarily in that they're just shitty. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's different. Like, it's easy to understand why the Mets are bad. You can explain it. Pete Alonso is having the worst year of his career. Jeff McNeil is now having the worst year of his career. So 2021 was pretty bad, too. Their starting pitching doesn't go deep enough. Their bullpen is trash. 
we can easily define that the performances aren't good enough. I don't think it's something that's undefinable. There's something wrong in the locker room. There's something wrong with the core. Pete Alonzo's not the right guy. It's performance. I don't think it's something that, you know, we're trying to find. I think there was a lot of that in 07 and 08. Let's change the manager. What's wrong with this core? What's wrong with this team? They're good, but they're finding a way to collapse down the stretch. This team is just having an all-around bad, bad season. Francisco Lindor was on Mookie Betts' podcast. I ended up listening to the entire hour. I thought there was a lot of interesting things. Uh, It was pretty entertaining. I thought Mookie did a pretty good job. I thought Francisco was very endearing. There were two clips I cut that I sent to Hoff because I said, all right, I think this is interesting for the audience. Number one, his reaction to the Steve Cohen press conference from a month ago. So we have the clip. Here's Francisco Lindor talking about our wonderful owner and that day. If you remember what happened that day, Steve Cohen announced a day earlier he was going to meet the media. It was in the midst of their struggles. This is what Lindor said about that and the owner, Steve Cohen. How do you feel about that? How was the the, the clubhouse kind of when that went on, like when he said that? Yeah, no, it, that press conference, he kept it. So when he said it was at a press conference, mm-hmm. he had a press conference. Mm-hmm. And um, he kept it very professional. He kept it real. He um, And when you're educating a subject, most of the time you're going to be in tune with what's happening. Right. You know, and... I respected it. I, I thought it was a great press conference, um, and he's right. Right, got to play better. Yeah, you know we got to play better. I said it yesterday too. Um, front offices can put the best team together, and on paper. Yep. But if us the players don't execute and don't come out and and do the job, it's not the best team. That's exactly what it is. I mean that's Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. Francisco Lindor agreed that it's on the players. We need to be better. As we just discussed, you've got a lot of guys having bad seasons. So the players and Lindor himself took Steve Cohen talking honestly about the players underperforming well. They haven't exactly responded to it. <laughs> it's, not, it's not as if everybody's having a better season because most guys aren't. The other thing, and I found this much more interesting, was the whole booing thing. Because remember when Lindor came over here in 2021, he found himself in the uh, controversy of him and Baez giving all the Met fans the thumbs down. And he was hearing a lot of boos early on. He hasn't really heard a lot of boos this year. There may have been sports talk radio debate about Francisco Lindor, but at the ballpark, that has not translated. He has not heard a lot of boos. There's been a sprinkle of them, but I don't think he has necessarily been a target. I think the team has heard it when they've underperformed on certain nights, when there's been lifeless offensive performances. But I have not gotten the impression that Lindor has really gotten the treatment from Met fans this season, and it's tough to, because overall his home run and RBI numbers are pretty good. But here's what he said about being booed in New York City. Because I couldn't understand in the beginning. I got booed um, essentially two months <laughs> Two months every day, okay. you know, and I could. I made my the fair amount of my mistakes. You yeah, know? I wasn't sure. hitting, and so it. you know they they're doing it. I wasn't performing. They're 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 letting me have it, um, and I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. 
uh, I, I, I'm like the thought that I always had was, man, I'm giving everything I got. I'm trying to put up a great show for for my family, for the fans, for the organization, and for myself. It's just not. It, it, it's. I just it's not translating, uh-huh. and I was making the mistakes, and. And then I finally understood. I talked to a lot of veteran people, veteran players, and I talked to a lot of people that played the game here, and they said, and I also had conversations with people that were just fans. Okay. Um, and they said, we just want the results. You could be anybody, and if the results, the results are not there, you're going to hear it. Uh-huh. And that changed, changed my mindset. It was like, oh, I, I got it. I got it. So I could get a base hit, they'll cheer, and I could strike out or roll over into a double play, and they're going to boo me. Or they're just going to be mad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got it. It's the <laughs> results. It's the it, – it's – yeah, I'm the one that's putting the, the results. Yep. However, but it's most likely the result. And then when they see me in the street, they're going to say hello. Yeah, you that's know? exactly it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And that kind of yep. – I said, man, I – I'll play hard. I'll do whatever I got to do every day. I, I just got to be better. Yeah. I've been saying that ever since I got here. I just got to be better. I just got to be. I'll probably say it the rest of my career. So, so how do you. Be- that, it's so funny and so simple. So Francisco Lindor essentially says, I didn't understand why they were booing me. I'm trying really hard. That That's what he basically said. Like, yeah, I know I'm not playing well and I'm not perfect, but I'm trying hard. Why are they booing me? And by talking to fans, which I love, and guys who played here, it finally hit him after talking to them. They just want me to play well. So for Francisco Lindor, and I, I don't think he's listening to Rico Bronia, but there were two reasons New York Met players get booed. And, I, and I'll attach names to it as well. There's guys who don't try. There are guys who don't hustle. And I'll give you a specific moment and specific play. Ricky Henderson in 2000. We think of him in 1999, but he was actually on the Mets in 2000 for the first uh, brief part of the year. He had a double off the left field fence, and he thought it was a home run. And he did his dance, and he ended up at first base. And he got booed so loudly. Now, think about it. Result was there. Hit the ball off the wall. He did not run. There were other times where Ricky didn't run. Bobby Bonilla did not hustle, acted like he didn't care, had that smile on his face. Those guys were booed because of lack of effort. Guys are booed because of lack of effort. Then there are guys, doesn't matter how hard they try, Lindor's a great example. I think Francisco Lindor hustles 90% of the time. He is one of the better effort guys I've seen. Mike Piazza was a big effort guy, too. He used to run out every ground ball, and I don't know if he got enough credit for it. David Wright, not as much. I'm going to call it like it is. Now, he never got booed for it because he's a homegrown guy, but there were ground balls left side of the infield David took his time on, kind of jogged down the line. Mike Piazza, though, he and he was so slow, so it's, sometimes it's tough to see it because he's like he's running in uh, quicksand, but Mike Piazza used to bust on every play. Lindor hustles 90% of the time. But then you've got guys, doesn't matter how much they hustle, they're getting paid a lot of money. They come with a reputation from another team. And unless they're great, they're going to hear it. 
And here's what I would tell Lindor. I don't know if you heard this story. Mike Piazza got traded to the New York Mets uh, in May of 1998. Mike Piazza came over here. The fan base is excited. They're all pumped up. Mike Piazza was a free agent at the end of the year. There was no guarantee Mike Piazza was going to remain a New York Met. And the time he was with the Mets in 98, he had 348. That's the highest batting average he ever had as a New York Met. He had 348. He had 23 home runs and 76 RBIs in 109 games. He had a 1,024 OPS, highest OPS he ever had as a New York Met. Mike Piazza heard boos a lot in 1998. Now, think about that for a second. How the F did Mike Piazza hitting 348 with a 1,024 OPS ever hear boos? And it pissed me off to no end. As a 15-year-old, I would not start a fight because I'd get my ass kicked, but I would ask people, like, why that? Why are you booing this guy? And the answer always was, because he don't come up with the big hit. Now, meanwhile, the guy's hitting 348. Like, was he never coming up with the big hit? The expectations for Mike Piazza when he first got here were so enormous that even upon hitting 348, he was getting booed. If Mike Piazza hitting 348 can get booed, then you bet your ass everybody who comes here with expectations will get booed. I'll tell you right now, let's not beat around the bush. Shohei Otani will get booed in this city because he's going to come here, if he ever did, with Elvis-like expectations. So Lindor, and I think he realizes it now, so I feel good about it, but Lindor now realizes, yeah, they're booing because I didn't hit a three-run home run. They're booing because I didn't do what the unreal expectations are. Now, Lindor also had a very bad first year. He deserved to hear some of those boos. Beltron had a bad first year. He deserved to hear some of those boos. But that's the difference between Pete Alonso and a superstar that's acquired, whether it's Shohei Otani or Juan Soto or whoever guy you want to come up with. When a guy develops in your system, they didn't come with crazy expectations. They just became the guy. When you acquire somebody, they have a resume. And I think a lot of times the booze they hear are about living up to that resume. So that was interesting. Lindor, it certainly seems like he gets it now. And that's great because he's got 500 years left on his contract. So I hope he does get it. Starling Marte's on the IL. Mark Vientos has been recalled for the Boston series. Will he play? I have no idea. None of us know. None of us know if Buck Showalter will actually let Mark Vientos play baseball. Tommy Pham is getting imaging on his groin. Bad A, because Tommy Pham has become the everyday left fielder. And B, if he has to go on the injured list, I think that kills a trade deadline deal. We'll spend more time on the trade deadline next week in terms of what they should do, who they should target, or who should they sell. I think we're all kind of in agreement that this team's going nowhere, but there's different levels of selling. Selling Jose Quintana, which you probably can, or Carlos Carrasco is very different than selling David Robertson. If you sell David Robertson, you're done. You know we have no, we're not selling, but thinking, ah, we still have a shot. You sell your closer, your one competent reliever, pack the bags up. This thing's done. So we'll certainly spend more time on that next week. I'm actually going to Boston this weekend. I can't wait. 
I'm taking the family on Saturday afternoon to see Mets Red Sox, and I'm a game time decision for Friday night because I'm spending the weekend in Boston. So the deal I made with my wife, Pete, was we are going to Boston on Friday. You may be listening to this actually while I'm in Boston. And then we'll reevaluate at five o'clock if I can take my oldest son to the game. If we're tired, if we want to go out to dinner, I guess I'll go out to dinner and watch the game at the hotel. But there is that possibility I'll spend Friday night at Fenway Park on top of the green monster. Because I may be efforting to get monster seats. I may have monster oh, seats. So 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 wait a second. So you got the tickets that you were talking that you say you weren't gonna splurge on yeah i got pressured i got pressured joe beningo kind of pressured me into buying monster seats because they were available i found them for an exorbitant amount of money and i ended up buying them i've also listed them on SeatGeek because i may not go like i'm not lying about there's no guarantee i'm going to this game so i bought them with an eye on i have to be able to move them because I can't drop that kind of money and then not go to the game. So between us, Pete, I think it's likely I'll end up at the game. Let's be fair about this. But I guess there's a possibility I sell them and don't go. I mean, it is experience to be on top of a green monster really far out in the left field. I mean, it is an experience. (laughs) (laughs) My whole point to Joe was, I don't think it's a great seat. And his point was, it's the green, bro, it's the green monster. You got to do it. Either way, I'll let you know. I'll let you guys know when we record the podcast. Remember, they play Sunday night, so our podcast wrapping up the Red Sox series will be late Sunday night, very early Monday morning. And then Monday, don't miss it. Me and Tiki at 2 o'clock. The new show Pete's producing, Sal and BT at 10 a.m. So we'll have a a fun day on Monday after Yankees-Red Sox and obviously Mets-Yankees. We got the Subway Series next week as well. This has been a rather long Rico. This may have been the longest Rico we've ever done. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, We do appreciate all the emails, including the in-game emotional emails at the RicoB at gmail.com. Have I missed anything, by the way, Pete? Have I covered everything so far? I think so. For this episode, I think you've covered everything possible. (laughs) We will do a lot of trade deadline next week, I promise. Uh, Our focus has obviously been these games and the Mets effort to try to get back in this race. But certainly next week, we'll go deep into the trade deadline, the buying, the selling, and everything in between. We appreciate you listening and downloading. If you're in Boston, I'll see you there. Thank you. Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 